So I'm going to read from the Word. Those that are here can stand. Those of you in your pajamas, you can stay in your beds. I'm drinking your coffee if you'd like. So from Acts chapter 4, I'm going to start with verse 32 and read through 5, verse 11. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and they kept some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it, re not, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. But as he heard these words, and as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men arose and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the, to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they shall carry you out as well. And she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I'll pray. God, I do thank you so much for your word and for your faithfulness to us. Lord, we need you, and we don't want to deal um, with you um, to, in ways that are, that are beneath you, not worthy of you, God. I thank you for this passage of Scripture that, that causes us to see your holiness, your greatness, and to worship you in fear um, and in, in reverence in, as you deserve. And I pray that you would just minister to us, God, as you know that each of us need during these troubling times. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I have to tell you, um, it feels to me that with these passages of Acts are, are very appropriate. Um, I don't know whether you, you all feel the same, but for me personally, going through each of these passages, I felt has been very, very timely. And I read these two passages together, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, because they serve as a, as a very strong contrast to each other. 
The first part that I read there, 32 through 35, is again a summary statement of the church and how it's doing at this time. And it's characterized by great power and great grace. One thing that's not said is great unity. And I think that that the generosity that we see here, and last Sunday I talked about the great grace was manifest in their ability to let go of their of their. Um, possessiveness concerning what they owned and not to to be hoarding but to but to release it and and to bless others with what they had other people that were in need and certainly it takes the grace of God to have an eternal perspective on our possessions and be able to to, and and to have the freedom to release those and let the Lord take them and use them to bless other people that it takes the grace of God but what was motivating these people was obviously unity. There was a very powerful sense of unity. And, and it's like, you know, it, it may be hard to give to somebody that you are, don't know very well, but the closer you are to people, the more tight that relationship is, particularly within family, the easier it is to give and, and the quicker we give. We don't even have to pray about it. I mean, we love them. We're, we're related to each other in Christ or by blood, and it's just not even a thought. Sure. Yes, absolutely. I'll help you. And I think it was this strong sense of unity that was really motivating this people at this time. And no wonder that Paul will say to the Ephesians that we are to be diligent to maintain the unity of the spirit that God has given us because it's everything. And I've, I've often said as I've thought about prayer and why God encourages us to pray corporately, um, it's not because God's impressed with numbers, but the expression of unity when we pray together corporately is something that blesses the heart of God, and it is very, very significant. So the Spirit of God encourages us to pray corporately, and because that's the time when we stand together in unity. And this giving was an expression of that unity. And it says in verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for they were all, all the owners of lands and houses were selling them. And then there's this phrase, and they were bringing the proceeds of the sales, and they would lay them at the apostles' feet. Now, I don't think that was necessarily literal, that they put the money right at the feet of the apostles, but it is a statement that they are surrendering the money to someone else's responsibility, someone else's authority without thought, without question. And so this speaks not only of the unity of the church, the great power of the church, the great grace of the church, but the great integrity of the church, that people could just surrender their life savings over to these apostles and have no question that it would be handled rightly. Nobody is going to be embezzling it. Nobody is going to be pilfering from it. It's not going to be any misappropriation of funds. Nobody's going to get rich off of this that this money is going to be used right because they could trust these men because they were men of integrity. And so there was, there's no longer are they, apparently there's so many people that have come to faith in Christ now in this short time that, there's, that it would not be possible to know everyone's needs because earlier in chapter 2, they're giving money directly to people in need. Now they're giving the money to the apostles and letting the apostles distribute the money where there's need. And so that tells us the church is growing and it's becoming more complicated in meeting people's needs. Um, It tells us that there's no preconditions that are being put on how the money is used. It's just given to the apostles and say, use it where you think it's best 
to use the money in meeting the needs of the body. So it was according to need. It was not according to relationship. That didn't even factor in. They weren't giving to their friends first or their family members first. It was according to need. So that tells us also that the needs had to be made known. And so there's, there, there's no hesitancy here to give the money, and there was apparently no hesitancy for people to make their needs known. And, th- and both of those take the grace of God. Sometimes it takes more grace of God to make your need known than it does to, get, to let go of your money and, in order to meet that need. But both are expressions of the grace of God. But I just want to highlight the importance of the integrity of these apostles. I'll tell you, um, few things have bothered me more than um, when I have sensed that people do not trust um, me personally or the ministry of Bernie Bible Church or the ministry of His Hill. Thankfully, it has rarely happened. But when I, I, I know what it's like to have your integrity challenged. And it's troubling, but it is especially troubling um, for me when I think about the integrity of the leadership at Bernie Bible Church, which I have absolute confidence in, in all the elders, in all the deacons. There's not a man there that has ever lied to me, that has ever been deceptive, that has ever in any way shown himself to be anything other than 100% trustworthy. And I thank God for that. I think there's a lot of people in this world that, that they, there's nobody in their life that they can look to and say that person has always been trustworthy. They have never lied. They have never deceived. I could trust them with my own money and not have any question that it'd be handled exactly as I wanted it to be handled. And I thankfully have lots of people in my life that way. And a lot of them are at Bernie Bible Church, which I'm deeply grateful for as well as here at His Hill. And it's a gift from God. And, it, and again, it's an expression of what God does in people's lives. And it's something that we should not take for granted because it isn't always there. I've, we've all heard way too many stories about churches and ministries where money is mishandled, misappropriated, and, um, and it is a black eye on the name of God. And so it is a great thing when we can have absolute confidence that everything is being handled the way that it should be. I was in a tense board meeting one time, and, um, and we were going through the accounts, and it wasn't for His Hill, and it wasn't for Bernie Bible Church, another separate um, thing. And we were going through the accounts, and, there, and it was just not clear where money was being spent. And so I asked the, the fellow who was, who was giving the accounts, a couple of questions, and and he didn't like it. And I remember he just snapped at me and said, would you expect me to be able to account for every penny? Yes, (laughs) I do. And and a a ministry ought to be able to give an account for every penny. And I know Bernie Bible Church can, and I know His Hill can. And, you know, honestly, Neither of those two ministries are part of the um, evangelical um, financial account, accountability thing. Um, and it's, because, it's not because we're afraid of their principles. We meet and exceed those principles. We just don't need to pay the money to have their stamp of approval 
and, and, and I won't even go into that organization itself, but there have been some questions about that organization itself. But the point is that anybody should be able to just to, to, to look behind the curtain and see exactly what's going on and know there's no secrets and nothing is being mishandled. Complete integrity. That is an example of a church that is spirit-filled and, and is being led by God in all that it does. Now, Joseph seems to be and is an exceptional man. But that's sad because he shouldn't be exceptional, just as this early church would be exceptional from how things are today. Shouldn't be. And so it says in verse 36, And Joseph, also known as Barnabas, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, so from the island of Cyprus, who is also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. And we love Barnabas. He's a great guy. Um, he was a traveling companion with Paul on his first missionary journey. Big-hearted man. He's the guy that when nobody wanted to associate with Paul because Paul had been such a persecutor of the church and people couldn't believe that Paul had really become a Christian, Barnabas was the guy who went and checked it out for himself and and really just grew to love Paul and, and had all the confidence in the world in him. And, and, he, and he brought him personally to the Jerusalem Council and said, you've got to meet this guy and see that, it, that he's the real deal. So he just loved Barnabas. When nobody else would be Paul's friend, Barnabas was, was there reaching out to him. So he was an encourager in words, but he was also an encourager in actions, and, and particularly the encouragement of how he was handling his own money. He was, a, he was generous, and, and he was relinquishing of it. He was, he was willing to place his trust completely in the apostles. And that encouraged other people in their faith as well. Great guy. And the reason I say that it ought to be the exception, because this, he's a picture of how the Christian life ought to be lived. I have always appreciated Watchman Nee's book, The Normal Christian Life. He uses that title because he's not saying this is the average Christian life, or this is the usual Christian life, but he's saying this is the normal way the Christian life ought to be lived. Too, too often it is not typical, but it ought to be the normal way to live. And the way Barnabas is living his life ought to be the normal way that Christians live their life. So he owned a tract of land, he sold it, he brought the money to the, to the, to the apostles and just put it in their hands and walked away. Now, too bad it wasn't anonymous, but his heart is pure. We're going to see that because of the contrast that's coming up with Ananias and Sapphira. So there was no pretense. There was no desire for recognition here. They didn't put his name on anything. They, they, they didn't make a plaque, you know, and put it on, on anything. It was just, but in, in the simplicity and guilelessness of his own heart, this is a man who could go and present his money and the others could know about it and it didn't bother him. He's not getting bloated over it. He's not puffed up. He, he's just a simple, pure-hearted man with no guile and he hands the money over with no thought to himself and that somebody might think that he really did some monumental thing. For him, it was just the natural outcome of being filled with the Spirit and walking in obedience to God. And so I don't think it ever occurred to Barnabas that, that somebody would, would um, misinterpret his actions or, or do something bad as, as, a, as a result of his example. But in chapter 5, 
we've got Ananias and Sapphira. And here's this couple. We don't know how old they are. We don't know if they had children or not. It's not even said. Um, it would, I, I would assume that they are older and don't have children, but we just don't know. And, and they watched what Joseph did, Barnabas did, and they go, you know, that was pretty amazing. And what a neat guy. And they just, and as they think about that and talk about it maybe over dinner, and they go, you know, we got a piece of property we're not using. Yeah, we could sell that property. And, and, they, and they decide to sell it. And somewhere along in the line, it just kind of became a thing of, you know, we wouldn't have to give the church all the money. And maybe they sold for a lot more money than they expected. Maybe they thought, yeah, we could sell that piece of property and get $50,000 from it. Small piece of property, $50,000, and they sell it, and they get $70,000. <laughs> they go, wow. Well, you know, if we give the church the $50,000, that's way more than we paid for it 20 years ago. It's more than double. So we're already giving the church $25,000 more than what we paid for it. It's the church is not going to be hurt if we don't give the whole thing and it wouldn't be and so what's the big deal if we just and it wouldn't be a big deal to keep some of the money but somewhere along the line they decided to not be forthright forthcoming in what the sale price was and they misrepresented what how much money they got from the sale of the land and that's the problem so it says, a certain man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. Now, by the way, sometimes names are pretty significant in what they mean. And Ananias' name means God is gracious. But God is also holy. And he should have remembered that. So maybe he's just banking a little too much on the grace of God when he should have been thinking more about the holiness of God. So Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property and they kept back some of it for himself. He and kept back some of the property for himself. So that seems to be he took the initiative. The husband here, this was his plot, his scheme. But he did it with his wife's full knowledge. Now, it doesn't say whether she opposed it, whether she raised an objection, but it does say Ananias is more to blame here than his wife. And bringing a portion of it, not the whole thing, he laid it at the apostles' feet, just like Barnabas did. End of story. Not quite. And maybe as he was getting ready to turn around and walk out, Peter says, excuse me, I got a question for you, Ananias. Um, really, it's not even a question. It's just a statement. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? <coughs> How would you know? Well, God told Peter. This is just a case of supernatural revelation, supernatural discernment. I, I, I can't help but think about that time when I was in college and I was an RA, and one of my duties was to periodically check the dorm rooms during chapel to make sure nobody was skipping chapel and that they were 
um, in chapel where they were supposed to be. And so I would go through and I just open up the doors and look in. Nobody's there. Close the door. Go to the next door. Look in. Nobody's there. But I went in one day to one room. Did more than just open the door. I actually went into the room. And then while I'm standing in the room, I thought, I think I'll open up the closet. And I open up the closet, and I see a pair of legs behind the, behind the clothes hanging up. And I pulled the clothes back, and the guy that's supposed to be in chapel is hiding behind his clothes. <laughs> and I go, hello. And he goes, do you always check the closets? And I go, do you always hide in the closet? And he was busted, big time. Discernment. Now, why? I didn't always check the closets. I didn't even always go in the rooms. But on that particular day, I just felt like, I should check a closet. And there he is, bigger than Dallas, hiding behind his clothes. Discernment. Busted. So God can do this kind of thing. And, and I believe that God has prompted Peter to just make this declaration of fact. You have lied. That's a pretty strong statement here where he says, why has Satan filled your heart? Now, I would, before answering that question, I would make also the observation here. Peter is not following Matthew 18, right? Matthew 18 says, when your brother sins, go to him in private and rebuke him. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. Peter, in front of everybody, why has Satan filled your heart to lie against the Holy Spirit? And Ananias drops dead. Wow. So, clearly, Peter didn't do something wrong here. Peter is, being, is given supernatural wisdom and discernment from God. And he is being led by God to confront this guy. And God strikes Ananias dead. So there is no hint in this passage that Peter did anything wrong. It's Ananias who messed up. So Matthew 18, I believe, should not be taken as a, 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 something that is an absolute of how every person is always supposed to be confronted. That it is never appropriate to confront somebody publicly before you've gone to them privately. I, don't see, I, I see no way that you can support, that you can that you can say Matthew 18 is an absolute when I see other places in Scripture where Matthew 18 is not being followed and it is the right thing not to follow it. So Matthew 18 is a guideline, but it is not an absolute of how everybody is supposed to always be confronted. Sometimes public sins need to be confronted publicly immediately and not privately. And that's what's happening here. Now, Satan has filled your heart to lie. So Ananias is not a Christian, right? Wrong. Christians, we all know, are more than able to lie. And Satan is the father of all lies. So when a Christian lies, God is not the author of that lie. Satan is. And to be filled with Satan is simply to be under his control. It doesn't mean that you are demon-possessed. 
It is not a statement on whether you are saved or lost. And I believe that Ananias and Sapphira were saved. I don't really think there were any unbelievers in the church at this early time. 100% populated by Christians. Two Christians. And Ananias is lying to the Spirit of God. And he has allowed Satan to fill his heart. So it's really not complicated. Everything we do as a Christian is either influenced by God or influenced by Satan. It's one or the other. And lies always come from Satan. Well, everybody lies. And it says that in Psalms. David says, all men are liars. I told my daughter Audrey, that should be your, your favorite verse before she was married to Mark. That, you know, that, so that she wouldn't date, so she wouldn't look at guys. You know, I want you to memorize that verse, tattoo that, that verse on your arm. All men are liars. And she didn't do that. She didn't believe me. But it is true, all men are liars. But that doesn't mean that it is the common thing, that it is the usual thing. I was with a friend not long ago, and again, with no pride, no pretense whatsoever, he just simply said, I don't lie. Hmm. And I've thought about it, and I've, and I've thought, I've known this guy for over 20 years. And I would say that is a true statement. I have never heard him lie. And I would not expect him to lie. I've seen him go through some difficult circumstances. And he has never lied. He is a trustworthy man. We have a friend um, who um, does not, he lives in a country where, where bribes are, are the what everybody does. Everybody takes bribes, everybody gives bribes. And he is a national in this country. And he has never, since becoming a Christian, taken or given a bribe. In a country where it is impossible to do business without taking or giving bribes. And he has never. And now he is being brought, will, whenever this virus is lifted, um, he has to stand before a commission on corruption, being accused of corruption when he has been without any corruption whatsoever. And he knows the charges are false. He's done nothing wrong. But he knows that this commission has, has great authority even to put people in prison. But the reason they would do that is because they want a bribe. And so he stands to go to jail. But to get out of jail, all he would have to do is pay the bribe. And he won't go to jail. Now, hopefully he won't go to jail anyway, but he could. And he is fully prepared to go to prison, go to jail, rather than pay the bribe. I'm impressed. So there are people in this world, Christians, many of them, who are truly people of integrity. Great grace, great power, great integrity. I don't think you're going to see a church with great power and a church with great grace unless there's great integrity. There's a couple of people, I don't listen to a lot of people on the radio um, that preach, but just because I don't listen to a lot of radio. But there are two in particular that I do listen to on occasion 
and I am regularly um, feel that I, 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 I am hearing the power of God when I hear those two men preach. And, I, and I, it humbles me, and I appreciate it. And I go, man, I want to preach like that. But, it, but there's something behind that. You don't just determine I'm going to be a powerful preacher. I hope not. <laughs> Good luck with that. But that is a manifestation, the fruit, the evidence of a pure life. You can't preach. You can't demonstrate. You can't live in the power of God without having a pure heart. A simple and pure devotion to Jesus Christ, which means integrity. If there's no integrity, there's not going to be any power. And so this is a powerful church because it's a church that is pure and simple in its devotion to Jesus. It's a church of integrity. The apostles demonstrate that. Everybody's demonstrating that. That's why this is a big deal. And so when Ananias lies about how much money he sold the property for, it's not a little white lie. There are no such things. It's simply a lie. And Satan is the father of all lies. And God kills him. Wow. That's the way to start off a church, <laughs> church movement. Just kill anybody that misrepresents things. Kill all the hypocrites. Some people would say, well, I wish God had kept on doing that. Because we all know we're all hypocrites and the church is full of hypocrites. It's one of the biggest accusations, faults that the world has with the church. There's probably no better time to impress something on somebody than early on. When campers come to his hill, we tell the counselors, the first night is when you need to make an impression. They need to know you are in charge. Because if you don't establish that the first night, you're going to spend the rest of the week wishing you had. So the first night, they've got to know you're in charge. You get a new puppy. You've got to train that puppy from the beginning. Or when it's a year old, it's too late. With a child, you've got to make that impression early on. I remember I had a little brother that I could tell was going to be a lot bigger than me. So I needed to make an impression when he was still little so that when he got bigger, bigger than me, he's still afraid of me. And it worked, thankfully. And so God, at the early stages of this church, not unlike what he did with Israel when Israel came into Canaan, and Achan stole some money that was under ban in Jericho, and Achan and his whole family are killed. That would have left a very strong impression upon that new nation of Israel as they come into a new land. And now we have a new church, the body of Christ, and God is making a very strong statement because he wants to make a strong impression here. Hypocrisy, lying, has no place in the body of Christ. I believe one reason for that is, is summarized in the verse in Ephesians that says that the church, I'm sorry, not Ephesians, but 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.15, the church, is the, the, the church is the church of the living God. 
the pillar and foundation of truth. 1 Timothy 3.15. That is a powerful verse. The church is the church of the living God. And the church is the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So this ought to be, the church ought to be the one place on this planet where you can go and find the truth. People are going to speak the truth and live the truth because I'm telling you, if the church is not that place, if the church is not living as the foundation and pillar of the truth, then where is society going to find it? Because we can't trust our governments to tell us the truth. We can't trust our school teachers to tell us the truth, our institutions of any kind. But you ought to be able to, to come together as the body of Christ and go, the truth is spoken here. I can trust these people. No lies are permitted. Because God is not the author of lies. Satan is. So Satan can fill a believer's heart. And that begins with a thought conceived in the heart that is not taken captive to the obedience of Christ. That's where Satan gets his foothold. Sometimes they're good thoughts. Righteous indignation. It's righteous indignation. Right? The thing is, righteous indignation, if God doesn't take control of this, then the devil can make that become a, a revenge, can make it become an angry confrontation. And, and Satan has filled our hearts, which started off well, can become an opportunity for the devil. So God takes the life of Ananias, and great fear came upon all, I can imagine. Verse 5, and as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Oh, goodness. And everybody's probably thinking, have I said anything that I shouldn't have said? Did I misrepresent myself? Oh, my word, right? And so you know that they are really, really careful now about everything they say and everything they do. Amen, as we should be. Because he's a holy God and he is not to be trifled with. So that doesn't necessarily, I'm not trying to say that we live in fear of God all the time. But I am saying we should fear God. That we should not let the grace of God cause us to forget that he's a holy God. And there is simply no room for hypocrisy or for lying. Here's a thought for you. Hold your finger here in Acts 5 and go over to Galatians chapter 2. Speaking about hypocrisy and not being straightforward about the truth. Peter says, why have you let Satan fill your heart that you have lied against the Holy Spirit? Okay, Peter, now the, foot's on the, the shoe's on the other foot. Verse 11 of chapter 2, but when Cephas came to Antioch, Paul says, I opposed him, Cephas is Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Ananias was condemned. Ananias died. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. 
Here are the two guys that are being put up in chapter 4 and 5 of Acts as pillars of truth and virtue, right? No hypocrisy in Barnabas, no hypocrisy in Peter, because there's no way that Peter could have said this about Ananias if he was guilty of the same thing and lived. So Peter's not guilty of hypocrisy. Barnabas is not guilty of hypocrisy, but now they are, and they're not dying. Peter and Barnabas were both guilty of hypocrisy, just like Ananias. And he says, and when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth, Ananias had not been straightforward about the truth. And God didn't kill Peter and Barnabas. And honestly, I'm glad he didn't. I would have been struck dead long before now if God always killed people for hypocrisy. There wouldn't be many people around to be sharing the faith if God always killed people for hypocrisy. But sometimes he does. Don't be tempted to think God just doesn't do this today. That would be a wrong conclusion. God still takes the lives of Christians. He still does. It's not always with great fanfare, but he's still doing it. And I believe God simply wanted to make a great impression upon the church from the beginning. And God's heart concerning lying and hypocrisy has not changed. It's still a major deal, even if he's not killing people for it. Now, one, and we shouldn't forget this, especially as parents, but anybody in any role where you have a position of authority and you can exercise discipline. Godly discipline is a good thing. It's a good thing. Too many people, too many parents are afraid of disciplining their kids. Some cultures worse than others, I understand. But godly discipline is a good thing and it brings about good results. And when the people saw what had happened here, the unbelievers are fearing God and the believers are fearing God. And that's a good thing. It can be done, discipline can be done in the wrong way, I understand. But godly discipline is a good thing. It has good results. Now we're almost out of time, so let me just rush through a few more things. When, when Sapphira comes in and sa- Peter says, what was the price? Did you sell it for this price? Now this was her opportunity to say, you know, this was never my idea. This was his idea. I told him you shouldn't be doing this. No, that was not the price. So she initially maybe was not in agreement with Ananias, but now she covers for him. She's being a good wife, and she doesn't want to embarrass her husband, doesn't want to expose him, and so she says, yeah, that was the price. Probably her motivation was good. She wants to protect her husband, but it was a lie. God looks at the motivation. But the motivation doesn't undo the lie. It's still a lie. And Satan is the father of all lies, no matter how good the motivation is. There is nothing here that would indicate that she's excused because she was being submissive to her husband. Clearly, the inference here is that that she is fully responsible to do the right thing, regardless of what her husband does. 
No husband has the right to make his wife sin. And Peter understands that. It's implicit here in that he's asking her separately. Is this the price you sold the land for? And then he condemns her because she too is lying to the Holy Spirit. So she was under no obligation to obey her husband in his sin. If we think that God is overreacting to hypocrisy and lying in this passage, then we're probably underestimating and undervaluing the holiness of God and the importance of moral purity in our lives and the seriousness of sin. What was trivial to Ananias and Sapphira was monumental to God. We should understand that while God is at work in the church, so is Satan. Two believers in the church filled with Satan. A spirit-filled church can have, spirit, can have Satan-filled Christians in it. Lying is huge. Lying warrants death, even little white lies. Hypocrisy is a form of lying. They tempted God or they tested God. How do we do that? We tempt God or we put God to the test when we see how far we can go before God disciplines us. There is a direct correlation, and this is maybe one of the biggest things I want to say this morning. There is a direct correlation between the power of the church and the purity of the church. Between the internal spiritual integrity of the church and the external spiritual impact upon society. So let me say that again. There is a direct correlation between the power of the church and the purity of the church. A direct correlation between the internal spiritual integrity of the church and the external spiritual impact that the church has upon society. I don't know. Nobody does. All the reasons that we're going through what we're going through today. I confess to being a bit of a conspiracy theorist sometimes when it comes to government and overreach. That's not to say that the virus is not real and that we shouldn't be very, very concerned about it. And it's not to say that we shouldn't honor and obey our governments. But God's doing something much bigger than simply trying to keep people alive. (laughs) We see from this passage, God is not always concerned about keeping people alive. Sometimes he takes the lives of people. And we can have concern to keep every single person alive, And God's saying it's time for some people to go. That's another lesson, another story. Well, all I'm saying is I don't know. I do not know all that God is wanting to accomplish through this virus. But I think it's safe to say he wants the purity of the church. He wants us to be serious about God and not to be trifling with who God is, as we are too prone to do in the church in North America. To not take God seriously, to trust in our money, to trust in our institutions, to trust in our own health. But we're not trusting God. And God wants his bride pure. No other gods before him. Not our money, not our institutions, not our health. Just God only. 
a simple and pure devotion to him. So I found this passage to be very timely for me. Um, haven't liked it a whole lot because there are different areas of my life that God's been putting his finger on and saying, get pure. Come back to that place of being simple and pure in your devotion to Jesus because it's a big deal. I'll close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word that says that you desire truth in the innermost being, Psalm 51, 6. And also from Psalm 32, where you've written, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be those people where you look in the innermost being and you find truth. You look in the spirit and you see no deceit. So God, I thank you for these circumstances that you've allowed to come upon this world. That if it has no other purpose than to purify the body of Christ, it's worth it. And we thank you, God, and pray that that would be accomplished greatly. That we might once again be a people of great power and great grace. Because we are people who walk in purity and integrity before you. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercies, for your goodness, that we can trust you. And we thank you that you do all things well. We don't always understand your ways, but that's because our hearts don't understand you. And we pray that you would keep us, and that we would live, Father, in the knowledge of your goodness and your grace, but also with hearts humbled in the knowledge that you are a holy God, not to be trifled with. In Jesus' name, amen.